Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 486th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Simon Jowett, Associate Professor of Economic Geology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and we're going to be talking about how ending mining would change the world. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Simon. Hi, it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for the invite. We are very excited. So we call this first segment Farouk Dinarin, and really our goal is just to give our listeners a little background into today's subject. So can you start us off with some background on the scope and reach of mining in today's world? Because I think most of us take take it for granted and have no idea how, how much uh, mining plays a part in our everyday lives. Yeah, well, I think um, all one needs to do is kind of look around in basically any environment except in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and even then potentially, uh, to, to kind of realize how important mining is to you know everyday life. The, the, the house or apartment you live in, uh, the electronics you use, the vehicle you drive, all of these things are, are basically built from things we extract from the ground, you know, be it like concrete and aggregate, metal, uh, all sorts of things. And, and you know, it, and the more we've kind of moved towards what we expect to be a, a modern standard of living, the more minerals and metals we become reliant on. So uh, the, the laptop you use, the smartphone you use, whatever they all have, uh, you know, a smartphone might have like 45 or 46 different elements in it these days. And all of those, or the vast majority of those, are going to be extracted from the ground by mining. Um, so it's uh, mining and in, in the minerals industry is crucial to modern life. But as you say, it's kind of it's a little bit obscured because it's a, a, often at a, a bit of an arm's distance from people, and so they don't realize how crucial it is. Yeah, I, I was. That was going to be my next question. I, I think part of the problem is that mining tends to happen outside of most people's line of sight. So talk to us about sort of the areas that are most mineral rich um, and and how that sort of relates to where urban population centers are. I mean, it, it, that's, a, that's a kind of, a, that question depends on what sort of commodities you're looking at, because if you, I mean, no matter where you are, there's going to be some sort of local extraction of like sand and gravel or aggregate for building materials, because it's a, it's a low value material that doesn't transport very far over, you know, it, it's only transported for short distances because it's it's not that valuable. But, um, you know, that, that sort of extraction will be happening somewhere near you. It's probably not very obvious because nobody really, or not many people, apart from geologists, like to see big holes in the ground, but um, it's going to be happening near you. Um, so that's that's kind of a global phenomenon. Like here in Las Vegas, there's three or four areas in the city where they're extracting materials for building. Uh, not many people know about them, but they're there and they're, they're vital to kind of local infrastructure. But if you if you're talking about metals that are more valuable, um, there's there's a number of different kind of global centers of mining. There's um, some here in the U.S. Uh, so Arizona has an awful lot of copper extraction. Uh, one of the biggest world in the mine in the one of the biggest mines in the world is uh, just outside Salt Lake City, Bingham Canyon, where they've been mining copper and molybdenum and bits and pieces of gold for more than a century. Uh, Northern Nevada is uh, one of the world's great areas of gold production and gold mining. 
Um, and then there's all sorts just over the border in Canada. So uh, nickel, copper, gold, uranium. Um, Australia is a, an important source of all sorts of metals. Uh, Chile is the world's most important producer of copper. So it's a, it's a globalized industry and it kind of it reflects the, the underlying geology in some ways. It's like where, wherever you find uh, the right deposits, that's where we're going to have to mine them because the, you've got to go where the rocks are and where the, where the mineral deposits are. But um, kind of uh, over the last 100, 200 years, we're becoming increasingly good at predicting where those mineral deposits are and finding them. Okay, so I think one of the other things that is a bit confusing for people um, is is just how much of a particular mineral, mineral or uh, substance that's being mined, how much of it exists. I'm, I'm thinking, for example, we often hear the phrase with um, cell phone components and, and computers and things like that. We hear the phrase trace minerals or trace metals. Um, you know, just how uh, how much or little of that sort of thing is and compared to say things that are not considered to be very trace like iron for example so i i guess the the key thing here is the 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 concentration which we can extract things up so if we, if we take gold for an example there's gold everywhere you know there's gold in seawater there's gold in soil but the gold in these environments is present at such low concentrations of that it would be prohibitively expensive in terms of like energy and things like this to actually extract it. We need geological processes that have concentrated those elements to a sufficient abundance that we can actually extract. So even in the case of iron, iron is everywhere, but there's only certain parts of the world like Australia, South Africa, and areas of the, the kind of a, a central U.S. in, in Minnesota and, and Brazil where that, you know, the processes have actually concentrated iron, even iron to certain concentrations in, in certain minerals that can actually be effectively extracted. So it's, it's a kind of, uh, you know, if, if energy was no problem whatsoever, we could extract metals from anything we'd like. But the, the fact is that we need geology to concentrate certain elements into certain areas that, to such an extent that we can actually extract them. So it's a, it's a function of the kind of geological processes that form mineral deposits and metal deposits. And it's only in certain circumstances that those occur all together with the right kind of recipe to generate a metal deposit that we can then extract. Them from. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's like, um, uh, yeah, it, it, every mineral deposit has its own recipe. And if somebody somewhere along the, uh, along the line, nature got that recipe wrong, you don't end up with a mineral deposit and you can't extract the metal. So, uh, it's um, you get certain areas at certain times in geological history where metals are concentrated more than others, and that's what we look for when we're trying to find mineral deposits. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. If you are wondering how to find out where locals love to go, there's a website called localsloveus.com. Or you can pick up a Locals Love Us guide around town as well. Localsloveus.com. 
Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Simon Jowett, Associate Professor of Economic Geology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and we're talking about how ending mining would change the world. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Rick is a man who spent most of your adult life involved in the mining industry in one way or another. Why don't you start us off? Now, you know that because of my rock collection or what? Just a really good guess. You're poor hearing. Poor hearing, yes. Explosives do that. Simon, the experience I had about half my life I I spent in in mining support, primarily uh, heavy equipment. And there has always been a growing opposition to mining. Uh, Is is that my imagination? Am I being overly sensitive? Or uh, do you see that in your work where there's uh, more and more opposition to mining efforts no that's um that's certainly the case i mean we the the minerals industry has kind of two key challenges in some ways when uh, you're looking at new mineral deposits and the first is actually finding the things and the second is what we're calling environmental social and governmental esg challenges and they're becoming increasingly important to the minerals industry and uh, it's basically the you know Ensuring that you have local communities and even national communities and uh, governments and on board and you're actually kind of doing a good job in terms of uh, mitigating against any environmental impacts. So I think the minerals industry has a, a bad reputation, which is somewhat justified because of poor practices in the past. You know, and we've been mining for, for centuries now. And the, the kind of impacts of those those poor practices are visible in, in a number of places across the world. But the, there is a general kind of uh, movement uh, away from mining, or to think that mining is a is a bad thing. But um, the, the, that kind of contrasts with the importance of mining to kind of modern life, if that makes sense. Sure, Ed, do you have a question? Yeah, um, Simon, when we're we're talking about. Um, you know, some of the really nasty stuff that mining leaves behind. And you spoke about this movement to um, hold mining companies more accountable for this, um, which I believe in your trade is known as internalizing costs instead of externalizing costs. Um, What would this do um, to mining on a worldwide scale if we made these companies, if you will, sort of clean up their room? I think um, it would certainly, I mean, so there's, there's two counterparts to this. So the first thing is obviously, you know, any sort of environmental cleanup and things like that, you know, the, the company should do, and it's uh, it's usually budgeted for or bonds or, you know, companies deposit bonds at the start of operations, but sometimes they don't actually cover the full cost of cleanup. But the, the, the counter side of that, so there are certainly costs in doing things properly from an environmental, from a social viewpoint. But the alternative to that is even more costly in that unless mining companies actually do what's right, um, do actually do what they're going to say they're going to do at the beginning of a project, do engage effectively with communities and make sure they benefit, then 
then the flip side of that is unless they do that, then the fact is they may not be able to mine. And that's even more costly. If all of a sudden you have a project you spend millions of dollars on and that project is, is taken away from you. And there's numerous occurrences of that that affect large and small mining companies uh, that you know, with projects that are either being delayed or just being outright cancelled because of uh, environmental concerns, because of social concerns and, and so on. So I think... You know, the, the the costs of the minerals industry are there and they're going to increase in terms of doing the right thing environmentally and socially. But the, the, the alternative, the cost of actually losing projects is far higher because that's what stops companies from essentially being solvent. Okay. Um, Simon, so kind of along those lines then, how long, give me a time frame, if, if I'm a company and I'm looking at... Um, expanding my mining production how long does it take to go from the geologist finding a site to actually having that site fully up and, and operational so the, the the finding a site is actually kind of a challenge in itself because if, if like the if you have an exploration project the chance of that project becoming a mine is maybe one in five hundred one in a thousand but uh, so the mineral exploration is inherently very risky. Um, but I mean, the rewards are obviously uh, um, uh, there as well in terms of finding a, a you know world class mineral deposit. But um, the, the timeline from you say you, you've got a project and that project looks like it's going to be mineable, it's going to be economic, you're going to make a profit, and everything else is settled. Then you know the, the permitting process, the development process, the kind of planning process, and all of that could take up to well, it could take ten years. It could take longer. So bringing a mine on stream is not a, a rapid business by any means. And that's one of the, uh, that's because, you know, the, just the permitting of a mine, the environmental permitting, the social engagement and so on, and all just the, the engineering side of things, all of these take a lot of time and a lot of planning and a lot of, uh, and, and all it takes is one small thing to be discovered like for example you might have a there's a lithium mine in northern nevada which at the moment has some indigenous uh, issues uh, in terms of uh, developing the mine but also they discovered a, a tiny little snail that's only located in six areas around that mine that may be affected by groundwater changes related to the to the mine so there's there's things like this the discovery of new flora flora and fauna that are actually you know indigenous to an area that may be affected by mining and, and companies and, and the and government and permitting agencies take this pretty seriously these days because it's just as i say if one small slip up and all of a sudden the project you spent millions of dollars on could disappear but the mining companies would like this process to be quicker but realistically the the level of detail of some of the planning and permitting that's needed means that there's always going to be some time taken between discovery and, and actually mining the the deposit okay rick do you have another question oh yeah oh, i got uh, i could just do the show <laughs> we'll just leave yeah right simon i was uh, actually this is not part of my question it's just an observation uh eagle mine up in the up of michigan uh uh, is uh, the largest uh, was discovered to be the largest nickel uh, ore body I think in the world, and uh, uh, it it took 20 years to uh, perfect that, and it wasn't it was helped along by the the uh, governor of Michigan who who accelerated the permitting process. So it uh, you know it depends on who the players are to help. Uh, 
shepherd these mine developments on. But my question is actually a follow-up on the cleanup. Uh, I was primarily involved in hard rock mining, uh, primarily metals, gold, silver, copper, nickel, uh, lead, whatever. And the experience I had with those mines, uh, several mines in Nevada, uh, in fact, did shut down. They they reached their life. But uh, the cleanup, uh, these people were, maybe they were conscientious people, but most of the mines that I saw in my 30-some-odd years of working with mines that shut down, they did an excellent job in, in reclaiming uh, the the land where you can't even tell there's a there's a uh, there was a mine there. Uh, has it gotten better? Uh, because my history is basically the 80s up through uh, the mid uh, uh, 20-teens. Has it gotten better as far as cleanup, uh, bonded cleanup for these mines that have gone away? I, I think it has in general, um, but there's always um, uh, in in general terms it has improved. So you know, remediation and closure management is um, is becoming more and more important, and has become more important over the last couple of decades. There's other th- there's other things though that um, kind of uh, come into play. One is kind of what you might call legacy mine sites. So you know, we've been mining in the U.S. for well, what 150 years plus, uh, and there's an awful lot of mine sites that are not remediated that may be fairly small, but may have significant environmental impacts on ground and surface water. And, and things like that, that, you know, nobody is, apart from the federal government, is actually kind of responsible for because it's been so long since um, since since they were mined or because they were actually mined before things like, you know, modern EPA legislation and so on. So there's, there's a number of former mining sites that are, that are or were super fun sites, uh, so it involves significant federal expenditure on cleanup, and that's because, you know, practices and uh, and, you know, in the 70s and before were not ideal, to say the least, and there was an awful lot of mining then. Uh, but in, in general terms, I think uh, certainly uh, uh, what we do nowadays is far better, but it still just takes one issue to kind of tar the the mineral, the entire minerals industry with one, you know, with the same brush. Because, sure, sure. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, and that's why everybody, you know, it, it's holding on everybody in the industry to, to be conscientious as much as possible. Okay, Ed, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. Um, Simon, we know, we know that we live in a closed system and that the geological timeline for the formation of these metal deposits or oil formation, whatever we want to talk about, is in the tens of millions to hundreds of millions of years. Yet we, these resources are being exploited ever, ever, at an ever-increasing rate um, which ones should we be most worried about? And as an ex-farmer, I think immediately about pot- potassium and phosphate. I think that um, it's this is a difficult one because certainly, you know, mineral and metal resources by their very nature are finite, as you mentioned. You know, we, we extract them at rates way higher than they form as a result of natural geological processes. But I don't think we're in danger of running out of anything in the kind of short to medium term. I mean, uh, there are issues with supply chains. So phosphate is one that's been affected by the the kind of Russia-Ukraine crisis. Um, There are other metals which are um, certainly uh, going to be, you know, maybe subject to supply chain risk because of where they come from and things like this. But the one thing we're 
One thing we're going to see, and we're already seeing, is, is actually not just a, a running out of deposits, but a, a sharp increase in demand for a wide range of metals. So, at the moment, we currently more we currently mine more than we ever have done in human history of anything, with the exception of maybe things like asbestos or, or arsenic that we don't really use anymore. But every other metal, mineral, and periodic table you think about, we mine more of it than we ever have done before. And that's a function of two things. That's kind of world population increase, plus also modern living. So if you actually look at per capita, so per human head of population, we extract more of basically every metal than we ever have done in human history. So it's not just we've there's more population, it's that everybody on the planet consumes more. And we already recycle more metals than we have done as well. So modern society is just hugely mineral and metal intensive. And we don't really think about that. But the other thing that's happening is that as people are thinking about climate change mitigation, as more and more people want Teslas or other electric vehicles, um, all of those things like renewable energy, like the grid infrastructure needed for that, like the, the electric vehicles, all of that is going to require even more mining than we've seen at any stage in human history. We're talking you know, for like doubling of global nickel production, an increase in, in, in lithium production globally of 400%. That's expected by 2050. And it's, it's not so much that we're going to run out, it's that the demand increase is going to be so steep for some of these metals, the question is, can we meet that demand increase? And it's, it's already kind of happening, and that's why you see governments nationally, internationally, uh, starting to worry about these metals that are considered critical to their economies and so on, and trying to secure supplies of them into the future. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting times that we're living in, and that just reflects consumer demand, investment, climate change concerns and, and, and potential moves towards you know, uh, essentially carbon neutral economies and, and just the, the way the world is going. So uh, we're becoming more and more mineral and metal intensive and the issue may not be running out, it's just keeping up with demand, which is slightly different than running out of mineral resources. And the other thing I would say is that we should make more of the mineral resources we have. We need to extract as much of the metal within a given mineral deposit than that we can. And that's we're moving towards that. But again, there's, there's more to be done to make mining more, I guess you might call it sustainable in terms of extracting as much as we can from a, a finite mineral deposit rather than leaving things in waste piles and, and the like. Okay, Simon, so the title of our show is How Ending Mining Would Change the World. So let me pull, have you pull out your crystal ball. Let's assume for whatever reason that mining is suddenly finds itself drastically curtailed. Give us some sense of sort of the places and the ways in which people would feel that impact the first first and then which would be the, the places where the, the impact would be the greatest. So uh, if you stop mining or radically curtailed mining tomorrow, then basically modern life, as we know, would probably cease to exist in the not-too-distant future. Um, essentially, you know, you can think about things like coal mining for energy generation, and that would probably be one of the first things to hit. Um, you'd end up kind of manufacturing and new, uh, new, new manufacturing of basically any commodity that contains metals or minerals, so that's new buildings, new infrastructure, repairing infrastructure, all of these things would start to be affected in the, in the kind of short term as well. And uh, like kind of climate change mitigation would be affected as well because we couldn't develop any more renewable energy. But 
all you need to do is look at the room around you. I mean, I, I can't see the room you're in, but I can imagine you've got lighting, you've got electricity, you might have a computer in front of you, you've got a smartphone in your pocket. All of those things, if you stop mining, um, when they come to their end of their natural life, they wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to replace them, not to the same standard and, and probably not full stop. The electricity you get through copper wiring, with that copper wiring degraded and you can replace it with new copper wiring from mining copper, uh, then, you know, then that, then essentially you wouldn't be able to transmit electricity around. And there's just kind of the, the fundamental, you know, the, the concrete and cement worlds we live in, um, they would also start to degrade and essentially collapse. So, uh, uh, if you stop mining tomorrow, then modern life as we know it within the not-too-distant future, maybe months, maybe shorter than that, uh, would cease to exist, and things would start to be affected within days, if not uh, shorter than that. Would you have, uh, I'm thinking longer term, would, would we start having issues with things like, I'm thinking of nuclear waste containment um, and things like that, which would be longer term issues, but but in a, in a way would be equally as devastating um, in terms of, you know, if suddenly all of those uh, underground storage facilities suddenly began to, to leach or, or whatever, do you see any long-term issues that would pop up, say, 50 years, 75 years, 100 years down the road? Well, if you, if you stop the, the mining of material that you needed to upkeep that underground infrastructure or infrastructure in general, then certainly. I mean, um, you know, the, the nuclear waste storage or even things like hydroelectric dams that need uh, upkeep in terms of the, the metal pipe work, in terms of the, the turbines, in terms of the, um, the, the actual kind of the dams themselves, which the concrete and so on, all of that needs to be extracted from the ground unless you have some sort of real huge and immediate shift in the way we approach uh, kind of recycling and start even kind of considering mining landfill waste dumps and things like this, then, uh, then you know, the, the infrastructure that surrounds us uh, within decades would certainly start to crumble. I mean, if, if you only got to do is... People look at kind of um, uh, Chernobyl as an example where basically abandoned infrastructure starts to crumble. And if you can imagine, if we don't have the materials to keep up our buildings and our infrastructure, then we'd probably end up something like that where buildings just collapse as a result of a lack of the raw materials from mining that we need to upkeep them and ensure they're safe and, and habitable and so on. So it's it's certainly, you know, new underground nuclear waste, any underground tunnels uh, that require concrete, that require metals, that require that kind of infrastructure to make sure they don't they remain safe and usable anything like that would certainly be put in jeopardy by uh, uh, the removal of mining it's, um it, it surrounds us the the stuff we use metals and minerals for kind of surrounds us and we don't think about it but if you take it away then it surely would certainly come to the forefront of people's uh, attention all right it is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show so simon why do you think knowing about the importance of mining is relevant in today's world? I think knowing about where anything you use come from, comes from is important because, you know, everything that we use, be it farming, be it mining related, uh, anything that we use, that we eat, that we consume has some sort of cost to it. And so uh, if you want a modern standard of living surrounded by things that you consider routine, like smartphones, like laptops, like computers, like cars... Uh, like anything in the built environment we see, you know, there's a cost to it. So you reap the benefits of that, but the cost is somewhere 
someone is extracting stuff from the ground in the form of mining. And unless we realise that and realise what that means for a modern standard of living and, and things going forward and, and, and understand that mining somewhere needs to be acceptable for that to continue, then we have all these kind of um, uh, kind of uneven arguments where people say, no, we don't need mining anymore, yet they use everything that mining produces. I'm not saying the mining industry is perfect. It isn't. But there always needs to be a balance between the things we routinely use and consider to be normal produced by mining and that cost of mining, which is often environmental and, and social. And that's improving, but there's always going to be a cost, and we need to realize that. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 486th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song of our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Simon Jowett, Associate Professor of Economic Geology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. We've been talking about how ending mining would change the world. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Pazutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.